Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark. Uh, We are in chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there is a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and uh, let's see, I'm double-checking here. I think that is on page 494. Yes, page 494 in the paperback Bibles. Thanks to everybody who came out for our work day yesterday. Thanks to the deacons for organizing that, hospitality team for getting a meal together for us and for all of the volunteers who served yesterday. It was a productive day, so if you're able to come out, appreciate it very much. Um, it's great to see the, the Gonzalez family here. So um, Gonzalez's were members here for quite a while, moved to Alabama recently, and they're visiting today. So it's wonderful to have you back with us. Make sure you say hello to them before the day is over. And let's give our attention now <clears throat> to God's Word. Again, Mark 10, we'll be looking at verses 32 to 45 this morning. Uh, one of my <clears throat> favorite movies was a film released back in 1984, dating myself a little bit there, I know, but uh, Amadeus, a very highly regarded uh, movie about Mozart, the great composer Mozart. And if you've seen the movie, you know that uh, while it is about Mozart, it actually it ends up being a movie that's more about a guy named Antonio Salieri, who was also a composer, uh, but one who labored always in the shadow of Mozart. And so throughout this movie, what we see is Salieri having this conversation with a priest, and he's just expressing to this priest his frustration with Mozart. And what frustrates him so much about Mozart is that he knows how gifted Mozart is, but he also notices how kind of childish and immature and silly Mozart can be, and he thinks Mozart is just this kind of infantile person, and he just can't wrap his head around why God would gift him so much when he was such a childish person. And so Salieri is just driven crazy. He's driven to the point where actually he wants to kill Mozart. And what you really find out is that what is frustrating Salieri so much is that he wanted to be great, and he knew that Mozart would always be greater. And there was nothing he could do about that. And it drove him crazy. And so Salieri, at one point in the movie, he offers up this prayer, and he says to God, a lot of theological content in this movie, actually, he says to God, God, make me a great composer. Make me famous in the world. Let me be celebrated, and then I'll give you every hour of my life. And you can just notice in that prayer just how self-centered it is, how much of that prayer of Salieri is not about making God's name great, but about making Salieri's name great. There's an interesting Old Testament counterpart or parallel to this. You know the story of David and Saul. Remember when David comes onto the scene, he starts gaining victories, and then these women come out and they sing this song and they say, oh, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. And the very next verse says, and Saul was very angry. Saul didn't want to know that there was somebody greater than him, and yet that man was 
David. There is in all of us a kind of a pursuit of greatness. And what we're going to see here in this passage is a warning against that danger, as well as the question being raised of what actually it is to be great. What does it mean to be great? Is it to be famous? Is it to make a lot of money? Is it to be known as the best in your field, whatever that might be? Or is greatness something different according to the Scriptures? That's what we learn about here in this passage. So we're just moving our way through Mark, one kind of passage at a time. Last week we looked at the rich young ruler, so we're picking up where we left off here in verse 32. If you're able to stand, why don't you do that, and I'll read God's Word to us. This is mostly a conversation that takes place between Jesus and James and John. James and John were among the inner circle of Jesus' closest companions, along with Peter, And so most of this passage is Jesus talking to James and John. But we'll start here in verse 32, Mark 10, 32. It says this, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Him and said to Him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes. Give us ears to hear wonderful things in your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The pursuit of greatness. Well, let's consider a few things about that. First of all, we're going to consider the pursuit of greatness corrupted as we look at verses 35 to 40. Let me just say right here at the outset that there is a uh, kind of a healthy pursuit of greatness, I think, a, kind of a, a healthy ambition. 
There is something proper about trying to get the best grades that you can if you're a student, trying to um, manage a profitable business, trying to excel as an athlete or a musician or whatever it is you have a passion for. This passage is not speaking against any of those things. Those are proper. Those are good. But what we see here with James and John is, is something different, something much more selfish in their request and pursuit. And you see it right there in verse 35. Maybe it kind of shocked you when you heard it read. This is what James and John's, the, John, the son of Zebedee, say to Jesus, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask.'" It's almost like the request of a prosperity gospel kind of uh, adherent, right? We just want you to do whatever we desire. And uh, we might be a little bit shocked by that, but then we review our own prayer lives and we realize that very often we pray prayers similar to this. So Jesus responds in verse 36, and He says, all right, what do you want me to do for you? Kind of a gentle response here from Jesus, Jesus perhaps giving them an opportunity to give a good answer. You know, maybe what they'll say is, well, here's what we want you to do, Jesus. We want your kingdom to be expanded throughout the world. Uh, we want to see many souls converted to faith in you. We want you to be glorified in all things. They have an opportunity to give a good answer to Jesus' question, but looking at verse 37 we find that their desire is this. Grant us, Jesus, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This is a request very much like Salieri's request. Let me be celebrated. Make me famous. Let me be lifted high so that all glory is received to me from all who come into my presence. That seems to be the kind of motivation here. Make us great. Let us be celebrated, Jesus. It's an interesting question to be asked here, I think, here at this point, as we think about when Jesus actually was glorified, certainly in His resurrection, but His glory is also seen in the crucifixion when He hangs there on the cross, paying for the sins of all of His people. There is glory there also. And when you think about Jesus hanging on the cross, who was at His left and who was at His right then? Two thieves, criminals, paying for their own sins, hanging there on the cross. And so, uh, I wonder if that's what James and John had in mind when they were asking to be at Jesus' left hand and right hand in glory. Probably not, which is why Jesus says in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. You guys don't know what you're talking about. I mean, we've all experienced this, right? Praying to God, asking for Him to do certain things, lifting up our requests to Him and finding that our prayers aren't answered and going away very, very disappointed, disillusioned, frustrated with God. I'm sure you've been there. I know I have. And I wonder how many times Jesus would say to us in that situation what He said to James and John here. You don't know what you are asking for. You, you don't realize where this would have led if I had granted that request where you would have wound up. You, you don't know what you're asking for. Very often the denial of our prayerful requests is God's mercy 
shown to us. We might not see it now in glory. Sometime, perhaps, we will see that, but that's what's happening here. They don't know what it is they're asking for. So, Jesus goes on here in verse 38 and offers a question back to them. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, the cup, very often used in the Old Testament as a symbol of God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment. And actually, baptism can be understood to have a very similar meaning. Uh, You might recall some of the places in the Old Testament where you find water to be prevalent. For instance, in the Exodus, right? Israel released from bondage in Egypt, and they're going across the Red Sea, and God uses the waters of the sea to judge the Egyptians. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2 describe that as a kind of baptism. Or how about Noah's flood, of course, the most well-known example of water being used for judgment. So I think both of these images are Jesus' way of referring to the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and what He is asking James and John is, are you able to endure the wrath of God for mankind like I'm about to? Unbelievably, in verse 39, they say yes. Yeah, sure, no problem. We can do it. Whatever you can do, Jesus, we can do also. I mean, talk about men who are puffed up with overconfidence in their abilities. Here we are seeing an example of that. Well, Jesus' response is in verse 39, and uh, He says to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. I think what Jesus is saying here is, you know what, there is going to be a degree of suffering and hardship that you are going to go through. Yes. It's not going to be the kind of suffering I'm going to go through, Jesus is saying, when I'm hanging on the cross paying for sins, but you will be persecuted. You will suffer. In fact, we find the fulfillment of this. Acts 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so, Acts 12, 1 and 2 is a fulfillment of what Jesus is predicting here in Mark chapter 10. So, there is going to be a persecution and a suffering that they are going to endure, but it's not going to be like Jesus. And then Jesus go on, goes on here in verse 40, and He says, you know, to sit at my right hand or my, my left, that's not mine to grant. Uh, we know in the Scriptures sometimes Jesus um, defers to the Father on certain matters of what is known. You know, Jesus says He doesn't know the time that He's returning. Only the Father knows that. I think it's another example here. The Father knows who will be in this position. And in any case, it's already been um, established, He says. Um, it uh, is for those for whom it has been prepared. So that's past tense. This is already decided. There's, uh, it's entirely locked up in the Father's decision. And uh, so that's how this portion of the conversation ends. Now, it's very easy to look at this and just kind of think, man, James and John, what, what a couple of nincompoops here. I mean, these guys are, are really just way off the mark, and we can very easily kind of look down upon them. Um, but perhaps we shouldn't be quite 
too hard on them. After all, they are looking to Jesus. They are wanting something of Jesus' glory, right? They do have some confidence in Jesus' kingdom. But the warning here is to beware of the desire for greatness. Even in the church, even even though James and John, to some degree, have pure motives in their heart, and even though to some degree they do want to see Jesus' glory, it's so easy to get tangled up with desires for our own glory. And that's what's happening here. Outwardly speaking, yeah, we want your glory, Jesus, but deep down, it's their glory that they're desiring, at least to some degree, enough that Jesus is going to correct them here in just a moment. But this happens even in the church. Pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, evangelists, missionaries, the temptation is always there for us to do ministry for our glory. And that's what James and John are falling into, into this trap. And we find later in James 3, a warning against this, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Selfish ambition. By the way, the different James writing this than the James we're reading about here in Mark chapter 10. There's a guy named Timothy Dwight, uh, grandson of Jonathan Edwards, who wrote uh, something called On Love of Distinction at one point. The Love of Distinction. And there's a quote from this book where he says, Among all the passions which myths lead, endanger and harass the mind, none is more hostile to its peace, none more blind, none more delirious than the love of distinction. That is the love of attention, the love of favor, the love of the applause of others. We're all subject to it. It's a temptation for us all. It's a temptation for James and John. It's a temptation for me. Maybe it's a temptation for you but it's the pursuit of greatness corrupted. But we go on, and we see the pursuit of greatness corrected in verses 41 to 44. One of the reasons that I'm being pretty strong in knowing that James and John are kind of misguided here is because they get corrected. Jesus challenges them, and that's what happens in verses 41 to 44. Jesus corrects them, but not before actually the other ten get involved. So if you look at verse 41, when the ten heard it, the ten, that's just a reference to the other disciples, James and John are two. Here's the other ten, twelve disciples total. The other disciples, they hear about this request that James and John have made, and they are indignant. They're angry. So what are they mad about? Well, I think what's making them so mad is they want to be great too. They want glory also. And they're just scandalized that James and John would think they would deserve glory. I mean, what about them? You guys will be at the left and right hand of Jesus, but hey, we're just as good as you. We deserve it just as much as you. What makes you think you deserve that exalted position? And so their pride is threatened, and they're angry, and again, they're just like Salieri. They want their name to be great. And so Jesus offers a correction. And he, 
uses an example of the world here in verse 42. He calls them to him. So that's all the disciples now. He's got not just James and John to deal with here, but all 12 disciples jockeying for position, looking for glory, wanting to advance their name. He calls them all to him. And he says, look, this, this is the way it works in the world. He says in verse 42, in the world, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, those outside the church, those in the world, they lord it over them. The rulers lord it over those under them, and the, their great ones, the ones considered great, they exercise authority over people. What he's saying is, in the world, this is how leadership is exercised. It's by power. It's by dominance. It's by control. It's by coercion. It's about getting people to serve you. It's about exalting your own name. That's the way the Gentiles do it. That's the way it happens in the world. But in verse 43, Jesus says, very importantly here, it shall not be so among you. Not among my followers. This is not how it's going to work. This is not the way I want my leaders to act in this world, jockeying for position and trying to advance their own name and exalt their reputation. Not among you. I won't have it. In God's kingdom, what we're going to find is the exact opposite of what you find in the world. It's going to be a total reversal of values. What we find in the world is what we're not going to find in the church. That's the intention. We don't rule, we don't lead by power and dominance and coercion. Instead, we lead by service. Verse 43. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Greatness is found in service. And Jesus demonstrated this better than anybody, didn't he? When, do you remember when he was with the disciples? Instead of commanding his disciples to wash his feet, he gets down on his knees and he washes theirs. That's leadership through service. Greatness is found in service. I want you to picture Bill Gates comes into a restaurant, sits down at the table, and an 18-year-old waitress comes up. Hello, sir, how can I help you? Well, I'd like a cheeseburger and fries and iced tea. So she goes and gets the food and brings it back. Uh, meat's a little undercooked. Could you please take it back and cook it more? Certainly, sir. She takes it back. He drops his fork on the floor. Um, I dropped my fork, I need a new fork. Can you get me another one? Of course, sure. Goes back and gets the fork, brings it back. Uh, no ketchup for my fries. Can you please give me some ketchup? Back she goes to get the ketchup. Of course, by that time, he needs a refill on his tea. Can you please refill my tea? She goes back and she gets it. She brings it back. Who's the great one? Is it Bill Gates? Or is it this 18-year-old waitress? And the values of the kingdom, according to what Jesus is saying, is that 18-year-old wait waitress is the one who is truly great. It just defies the way the world works. And this is what a commentator named James Edwards tells us. He says, at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. The preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power, not even freedom, but service. So 
if this is true, and I think it is because the Bible says it is, that means there's a lot of greatness going on around here on Sunday mornings. People back in the nursery serving right now. People have made coffee for us this morning. People who have been teaching our children during discipleship hour, teaching our children even right now. That's, that's greatness. You know, talk, people talking about a brush with greatness. You're all brushing with greatness every Sunday morning here. How about yesterday during our workday? Man, there was a lot of greatness at the workday yesterday. There were people washing the windows and painting the walls and spreading mulch and hanging signs and preparing lunch. All greatness. The world looks at that and the world is not impressed. The world does not see that that is greatness, but, but Jesus does. There was a, a book that came out, maybe some of you uh, are familiar with Good to Great. It's almost, well, it's more than 20 years old now. But a very interesting book because um, it's talking about how, not, not how companies can go from being bad to good. The whole purpose of the book is how do companies go from being good to great? Companies that are already good, what is it that kind of gets them to the next level, to a place of greatness? And so it talks about the leaders of these kinds of companies, and, and you might think that what it would say is that, well, the leaders of the good to great companies are charismatic, and they're, they're powerful, and they're enormous personalities, and they're dominant, and they're in control, and that's not at all what Jim Collins, the author of the book, found. He said that the qualities of the leaders of the good to great companies have a complete absence of ego and self-interest in almost every case. The good to great leaders didn't want to be put on a pedestal, nor did they seek to be larger-than-life heroes. But instead, they were devoted to serving the company and their employees. And those are the companies that ended up being great. Harry Truman said this, former president, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. And that's the principle that's being taught to us here that Jesus is expressing to us. The pursuit of greatness corrected is service to others. And so then lastly, we look and we find the pursuit of greatness perfected. The pursuit of greatness perfected because we want to ask this, ultimately, why is it that we choose to serve? Is it so that we can have a successful business? You know, do we, do we choose to adopt the role of a servant because it'll help us get ahead in life? Do we choose to be servants because it will make our name great? I mean, this is how this kind of thing can go wrong so easily. We, we can actually serve people and give an outward appearance of humility for the purpose of making our name great. And so we get the corrective to that here. The, the reason that we adopt this attitude of service is because it is the way of Jesus, because it is the heart of the gospel. That's where we find true greatness perfected. So notice the connection that Jesus makes here in verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, verse 45, for, you could read that as because, the reason why is that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why this 
is the way of Jesus. This is, this is the gospel. Now, I skipped over verses 32 to 34 at the beginning, um, but that's what Jesus is referring to here in verse 45. Verses 32 to 34 is the third time Jesus predicts his own death in the book of Mark. First time was chapter 8, 31. Second time was chapter 9, 31. And now here in chapter 10, Jesus again predicts his death, but in verses 32 to 34, we, we get some additional information that we didn't get in the earlier predictions. So, for instance, we learn in verse 33 that um, Jesus will be condemned, not just killed, but, but he'll be condemned and that he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. So it won't be just the, the Jews putting Jesus to death, but the Gentiles also. And we learn in verse 34 that Jesus is going to be mocked, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to be flogged. And these are things we'll see when we get to chapters 14 and, and 15. But I want you to notice also, if you go back to verse 32, notice Jesus was walking ahead of them. Don't for a minute think that Jesus went to his death reluctantly. It wasn't like he was a prisoner with his hands tied behind his back being led to the gallows. That's not the picture the Gospels are giving us. He's walking ahead. He's leading the way. He's going to the cross because that's why he came, and that's why the Father sent him. But we find the most crucial additional detail there in verse 45. What we're getting here is not just how Jesus will be killed, but why. Why will he be killed? Verse 45. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but serve, and to give his life as a ransom. A ransom. That's a very important word. He came to give his life as a ransom. The root of that word is the same root for the word redemption. He came to give his life to redeem. To redeem. To, to redeem or to, to ransom is simply to make a payment to free or release a slave or criminal from captivity. That's what it is to redeem. That's, that's what it is to offer up a ransom. John Stott says it like this, and in all cases of redemption in the Old Testament, there was a decisive and costly intervention. Somebody paid the price necessary to free property from mortgage, animals from slaughter, persons from slavery, even death. Redemption always involved the payment of a price. That's essential to this meaning ransom, redemption, the payment of a price. Now, what was the price paid? For your salvation. What was the price that Jesus paid? It wasn't a bag of money like you hear with the kidnapping stories, you know, send me some cash and I'll release the prisoner, what we normally think of when we think of ransom. It wasn't money. It was Jesus' life. It was the shedding of His blood. It was the giving of Himself to pay your ransom. Your salvation, friends, the forgiveness of your sins, the assurance that God loves you and accepts you, the assurance that you're going to heaven, the assurance that you're justified before God, friends, that is expensive. That is costly. And the only way that it could be accomplished is through the giving of Jesus' life. There was a cost, and Jesus paid it all, as we just sang. We see this also in 1 Peter, 
You were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, money, but with the precious blood of Christ. I recall years ago a pain off my car, a Saturn view that Mary and I purchased. And so for many years we made payments on this thing and then finally we paid it off. And I remember getting this letter from, from Chase Bank, dear Robert P. O'Bannon, we would like to take this opportunity to thank you for financing your vehicle through Chase. We hope that your experience with us has been a favorable one. Your account has been fully satisfied. (laughs) Those are sweet words, aren't they? Have you ever paid off a car or a house? Talk about being liberated from bondage. Your account fully satisfied. Your debt paid in full. The difference with the gospel, though, is that it's not a payment that you're making month after month or week after week or year after year with your morality and your devotion to the church and all of even your service, even your humble service. That's not how your sins are paid for with your service and your work and your efforts. That debt was fully paid by Jesus Christ on the cross when He gave up His life as a ransom. Fully paid. There's nothing left for you to add. Your account before God has been fully satisfied. That's the glory of the gospel. That's central to the gospel. This verse, Mark 10, 45, might be the most important verse in the entire gospel of Mark. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, if you're not a Christian today, what I urge you to do is to trust this Jesus to trust this Savior, the Son of Man, who came to pay for your sins. Stop trying to pay your debt yourself. Let Him pay it for you. Put your trust in Him. If you are a Christian, let me remind you, you are not your own because you have been bought with a price. And so, stop living to make your name great, but live so that His name will be made great through you. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for speaking the truth to us in Your gospel. Thank You, Jesus, for serving us by giving Your life as a ransom for us. God, I pray that You would fill our hearts with desires to serve others, not to pay for our salvation, but because You have served us so well in the gospel. We thank You. We praise You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.